Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I am Zaid Wahab, and now that we are done with the second fitna, we can finally introduce the Ummah's latest Caliph. Introduced may be the wrong word to use here, as you already know a lot about the accomplished Umayyad, but we'll get to learn a lot more now that he was the man in charge of the Caliphate. Episode 25, Abdul Malik bin Marwan. I think by now we've established a solid tradition when it comes to episodes named for their caliphs, the one where I provide a short account of the new leader's upbringing and past up until he took office. While we are not explicitly told any stories about Abdul Malik's youth, Marwan's prominence allows us to chart the son's life by following his father's fortunes, giving us plenty to go on. Abdul Malik was born the year Uthman was chosen to lead the Ummah which meant he was only 12 when the third caliph was killed after being besieged in Medina, and 17 when Muawiyah emerged victorious from the first fitna. So we know his first 12 years were stable, with his father being the caliph's right-hand man. But that stability was swept away when Uthman was besieged and killed in Medina. And it's important to note that Abdul Malik had a front-row seat to all the brutality when he was still a child. He had to secretly slink away from the city with the rest of the surviving Umayyads after hiding in a granary for a while, a harrowing experience for anyone, let alone a teenager who until recently was sheltered by his father's wealth and influence. As a young man, he distinguished himself in Muawiyah's navy for a spell, but kept at arm's length by the caliph, Abdul Malik went back to Medina to assist his father with its governance. While we've already covered the rest, I'll repeat some highlights along with his age at the time. It was Abdul Malik who wrote to inform Yazid of the besiegement of the Umayyads in Medina at the start of the second fitna, when he was in his mid-thirties. He carried his weight at the decisive battle of Marjrahid, which reinstated Umayyad power in Syria a few years later. He must have been around forty when he was hailed caliph following his father's death, and in his late forties when Ibn Zubayr was killed, and all the caliphate's lands were reunited under his rule. We got a pretty good preview of Abdul Malik's decision-making during his long struggle against the sons of al-Zubayr, and in my focus on the second fitna itself, I did neglect to mention some of his noteworthy decisions from that period. The most important one by far was his commissioning of the construction of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Obviously, there are multiple theories as to his motivations, some saying the architecture makes it clear that it was an attempt to rival the Christian Byzantines, others that it was to assert control over the land. I'm unconvinced that Abdul Madik had anyone other than his subjects in mind, and so I think a good explanation is one that puts the second fitna in center stage. Ibn Zubayr always led the pilgrimage, and he had forbidden any Umayyads from participating while he was around. It's a reasonable guess, therefore, that Abdul Malik wanted to add to the religious character of his domain, and he had the perfect site in the Al-Aqsa Mosque where the second caliph himself had prayed. Erecting a fancy mosque to match the fancy temples and churches nearby may seem like an obvious choice, 
but I find it notable because for the first time ever, a caliph was laying the foundations for an actual state. Okay, so maybe there's a little hyperbole in that. And don't get me wrong, I realize that other governors had built impressive mosques before, even founded cities in faraway lands. But that was all done in the name of the Ummah, a vague collective resembling a tribal coalition. This project was different. It was a proclamation that the Umayyads were bringers of order and splendor, and that they were here to stay. When the Dome of the Rock was completed, it was beautiful, and it bore Abdul Malik's name. Another major policy change a few years down the line further confirmed Abdul Malik's statecraft. He became the first caliph to officially mint Arab coins, and he had all tax registers translated to Arabic and overseen by Arabs. Here, too, we find all sorts of theories surrounding what prompted the caliph, usually fanciful stories with undertones of religious competition. Al-Tabari only mentions that coins had various weights and grades before these changes, complicating taxes, spending, and accountability. These were all reasonable needs for a budding state, needs which Muawiyah never really faced, further driving home the point that Abdul Malik was engaged in building something new here. Let's stick with Abdul Malik for a little while longer, because unfortunately for much of his reign we'll be discussing other people, why they rebelled against him or upheld his power. We last left him after he had conquered Iraq and decided to return to his capital in Damascus. In that same year, 692, Abdul Malik's brother commanded an army against the Byzantines, who had violated the peace treaty which had stood for over a decade. The battle at Sebastopolis, on the south coast of Turkey today, was won by the Umayyads after thousands of Slavs abandoned the Byzantine armies. There are some short mentions scattered across our sources of Byzantine partisans needling the Arabs every now and then, but since they get most of their material from the oral histories, these Byzantine engagements are barely discussed. For example, let me tell you what Ali Aqubi has to say about Abdul Malik's conquest of Armenia, which rebelled against Arab rule after some encouragement from Constantinople. Back when the territory was paying tribute to Mukhtar or Mus'ab, Abdul Malik was fine with the Byzantine attempts to regain influence there, but not anymore. Yaqubi tells us that, quote, Abdul Malik killed and enslaved, then wrote to the rebel leaders promising them safety. He brought them together in a church and burned them alive inside, end quote. So clearly Arab memory had not cared to preserve what took place in any detail, but whatever happened, it does not sound good. Al-Tabari shockingly has nothing to say about Armenia, and Al-Mas'udi sticks to amusing letters between the Caliph and the Emperor. But I thought the warming conflict with the Byzantines is noteworthy because it seemed important to Abdul Malik. In fact, back when he first became Caliph, Abdul Malik had sent a small force west to Qayrawan, the caravansary that had been founded by Uqba bin Nafi, then overtaken by the Berber tribes in the early 80s. The commander of this new army was actually Uqba's deputy, but he was routed by the Berbers then killed by the Byzantines once he escaped from the desert to the shore. While there wasn't much Abdul Malik could do about it at the time, he kept the incident in mind, and one of his first acts after settling things with Ibn Zubayr was to send a 40,000-strong army to Africa under the commander of one of his many capable Qahtani generals, Hassan ibn al-Nuhman. Our sources delight in telling how it was the largest army Africa had ever seen, which of course wasn't true, but it seems like it made a big impression. 
The Arabs were obviously well suited to the terrain, and they had no problem retaking Qairawan and eventually Hippo and Carthage, burning the latter to the ground according to some dramatic narrations. They would go on to found what we know today as the city of Tunis and achieve great success in their service to the Caliphate, but these are all events we will discuss some other time. Okay, now comes the part where we need to talk about people other than Abdul Malik. In this case, Al-Hajjaj bin Yusuf al-Thaqafi, the commander who took out Ibn Zubayr in the early 90s. One of the first things he did after that was tear down the Kaaba again and rebuild it exactly as it had been before Ibn Zubayr's renovation of the shrine. He then punished any and everyone he suspected of being disloyal, resentful, or even insufficiently enthusiastic. I know I've harped on about brutal governors before. Basur was a bloodletter, Ziyad was strict in the name of duty, and Allah was sloppy. But believe me when I say that Arab history knows no meaner governor than Al-Hajjaj bin Yusuf. I think Busur was bloodier and more shocking, but nobody terrorized the people under his charge like Al-Hajjaj, and it'll show in the next few episodes. Already in Medina he gets shamed by Abu Bakr's daughter, mother of Ibn Zubayr, for his cruelty in displaying her son's body, either crucified or impaled for three days. Mas'udi has a diverting story about this time, and he tells us that Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah wrote to Abdul Malik, asking him to tell his notorious governor to lay off so that the Hashemite could participate in the Hajj. Abdul Malik told Hajjaj that Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah was not to be messed with, and so when the two ran into each other in Mecca, the governor commented on the matter, and Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyyah used a clever turn of phrase in reply, one both witty and devout, about how God's attention never fails to protect the pious. Al-Hajjaj was so impressed with it that he used it in a letter to the caliph, who in turn was so pleased with it himself that he used it in a letter to the emperor of Byzantium. Constantinople's reply came saying that such eloquence could not have come from a ruling family, only from a prophet or his kin. After all, who other than Byzantine royalty would have such a discerning ear for Arabic prose, right? Anyway, enough silliness. Al-Hajjaj's reputation could have been a liability for Abdul Malik, but the caliph realized he could use someone like him in charge of Iraq, whose cities kept rebelling against the Umayyads in charge of them. Unknown assailants, though our sources figure they must be Karajites, had assassinated the governor of Kufa, the caliph's own brother, while he was leading prayers at the mosque. To make matters worse, the governor of Basra had replaced the great general Al-Muhallab with his own brother, who immediately proceeded to get himself killed fighting the fierce Azadiqa Karajites. So Abdul Malik sent the governor of Basra to Khurasan to deal with matters there, which we'll get to some other time, and he installed Al-Hajjaj in charge of both Basra and Kufa. The speech Al-Hajjaj delivered in Kufa is remembered so vividly in Arab history that it is one of the few speeches I've come across quoted in all three sources. Our Armenian middle school Arabic teacher would quote it to us when we were about 15, so it's still around. I kind of want to translate it all to you, but it's long, and I'm not sure how many synonyms I know for traitorous filth. He opens by calling the people of Iraq the people of hypocrisy and strife, saying that he can already see the blood flowing between their beards and turbans. He said that the caliph had sent them his toughest man because they needed a beating, and he dared them to try him. When he had Abdul Malik's letter read out to them at the mosque, he stopped the speaker after the caliph's greeting and upbraided the Kufans for not responding to it, then made them do it right the second time, like a mean schoolteacher. 
He then killed a few people, all said to have taken part in different rebellions against the Caliphate, and he proclaimed that the only thing that would spare a traitor was service in Muhallab's army. One of the Caliph's orders was for the general to be reinstated in the fight against the Karajites, and we're told Al-Hajjaj thus won him over 4,000 Kufan volunteers, who rushed to join his camp not far from the city. We'll have to spend a considerable amount of time talking about Iraqi rebellions against Abdul Malik's reign today, I'm afraid. But before we get started with these, let's go to Mecca one last time, where we have some rare direct quotes from the Caliph as he concluded leading his first Hajj pilgrimage. This was in 694, so the same year Al-Hajjaj was sent to Iraq, replaced by Abdul Malik's uncle. So it seems to have been a memorable year for speeches. The Caliph's pilgrimage went fine, but at the end he said, and I'll translate here a lot less eloquently, quote, I am not the weak Caliph, I am not the wily Caliph, and I am not the senseless Caliph. I swear I will write this Ummah with my sword. You quote the words of the early Muhajirun, but do not imitate their actions, demanding piety while forgetting yourselves. If anyone asks me to show piety, I will strike their neck. Anti-Umayyad sources seize on this widely reported speech as proof of the clan's sinfulness. But I think to focus on its heretical undertones entirely misses the point. Abdul Malik was telling everyone in no uncertain terms that he was caliph because of his undefeated armies and nothing else. While previous caliphs sought to bolster their religious credentials, Abdul Malik dispensed with the whole notion of being the Prophet's successor in any spiritual or moral sense. The Caliph was simply the man in charge. I consider this a real milestone for the Caliphate. It was practically a separation of religion and state. Okay, okay, maybe that's going a little bit too far. But I still think it was a major development, and even more proof that Abdul Malik was not restoring, but reshaping the Caliphate. Alright, that said, let us get back to Iraq. There is no need to remember any of the names you're about to learn, as most will be gone in an episode or two, without having had much of an impact on the caliphate. I did consider just skipping this part and telling you that repeated rebellions against Abdul Malik failed, but if I did that, it would be hard for you to appreciate just how vital the caliph's capable generals were to ensuring his rule, so I'll go through the many rebellions rapidly instead. Scrutinizing the situation, you will see that things were actually extremely precarious with the important exception that the Caliphate's many enemies were disunited, with none able to rival its power alone. Al-Hajjaj's appointment in Iraq immediately turned some people away from the Caliphate, and many more as they got to know the willfully antagonistic governor, who insulted and goaded its people regularly. Such disenchantment with authority typically grew the ranks of the Karajites, and the Azariqa east of Basra gained many followers after Al-Hajjaj first arrived. These were the nastiest Karajites, named after a Nafi' ibn al-Azraq, who had already been killed by Muhallab a few years back. That was typically enough to disband a group of Karajites, but not these baddies, whom we are told were the bloodiest, least repentant, and most unsympathetic bunch of the Ummah's various secessionist movements. They found a new leader in a Qatari, they called Qatari, and Al-Muhallab had to fight against him for years to dislodge him from around Basra, after which Qatari basically founded a little fiefdom further out. He began collecting taxes and building up an army, growing large enough to pose a real threat to the caliphate. Al-Muhallab and his sons fought against him for years, 
and that Hajjaj sent him army after army to little effect. Qatari's downfall was practically a caricature of the disunity which plagued Abdul Malik's enemies. A deputy of his killed another Karajite without cause and sought Qatari's protection. When his supporters demanded he turn the guy in, Qatari argued that he was one of his most capable helpers and that they needed him, but that just led to accusations that he was acting like he was above the law. The Azariqa grew divided on the issue and fought each other for months. Al-Muhallab let the two sides weaken one another, and when Qatari was at his weakest, around Tabaristan on the mountains of the South Caspian Sea in the year 697, he was killed by an army led by Sufyan al-Kalbi, another truly epic general serving in Abdul Medik's expert armies. There's not one, but two more rebellions to tell you about in Iraq. When al-Hajjaj first arrived, he put three of al-Mughira bin Shaba's children in charge of its cities. They were kin from the same town and tribe as the new governor, and their father, the Dahiya, had enjoyed a reputation for success in managing the province, so it must have seemed like a reasonable call. Mutraf ibn Mughira, the eldest, in charge of Madain, was deeply moved by the plight of its mawali, and before too long he was questioning the justice in barring these Muslims from the rights held by the Ummah's Arabs. He blamed the worldly aims of the caliphate and its leadership, and seems to have professed his belief that a proper election council held by the Qurayshi chiefs would return the Ummah to the right path. This guy wasn't even Qurayshi himself, he just really seems to have bought into the idea of Ashura. Anyway, Mutraf didn't really go against al-Hajjaj's authority until the entire north of Iraq was an open rebellion, and that was the doing of Shabib. Shabib's Karajite rebellion is both mysterious and fascinating not least of all because he often went to battle with his wife and mother by his side, both of whom were renowned as brave warriors. How it all began is a little blurry, something about Musul wanting to rebel against al-Hajjaj, then the leader of that rebellion dies and Shabib is somehow the figure the movement coalesces around. Some narrations count up to five armies sent by al-Hajjaj from Kufa defeated by Shabib, who now controlled Musul and was growing more and more popular in Iraq, as he eluded the hated governor. That's when his wife, Ghazala, made a vow to pray at the mosque in Kufa, and not just pray, but to recite the two longest surahs from the Qur'an, something which meant that she would be there for hours. She, Shabib, and a couple hundred partisans made the trip down, fought off al-Hajjaj's men as the governor fortified himself in the castle, and basically dominated the city while the lady fulfilled her vow. It's pretty unclear how things play out, but Shabib continued to be a thorn in the side of al-Hajjaj for another five years. One narration says that during this time he passed by al-Mada'in and met Mutraf ibn al-Mughira. The Dahiyah's son listened to Shabib's complaints against the caliphate, which boiled down to enmity towards the loathsome al-Hajjaj and calls for greater autonomy, for all the ummah to be seen as equals. As with the Mawadis, please, Mutraf immediately sympathized, and told Shabib that the two should join forces. Mutraf said he believed that the right Qurayshi, the one who truly understood and applied the Prophet's teachings, could never fail to see the justice of Shabib's cause. Shabib was unimpressed, and in reply he said he didn't see what Quraysh had to do with anything. His people had selected him as their leader, and if Quraysh wanted any say about how he did things, they were enemies, asking for a right which had to be earned in battle. The narration may be a little doubtful, 
but the point it makes is that despite both seeking to overthrow the same authority, the two movements could not see eye to eye. For most of this time, authority in Iraq was largely in Shabib's hands, and many narrations say he had himself pledged to as caliph, something I find strange as Karajites never sought to replicate or take over the caliphate, only to bring it down in order to restore the age of autonomy that preceded it. Perhaps he wanted to be seen as an equal to Abdul Malik, or even to belittle the title. He survived dozens of armies sent by the caliph and his governor, either by defeating them or escaping capture with few losses. Eventually, Sufyan al-Kalbi, the same legendary general who would go on to kill Qatari in Tabaristan, defeated him in a battle outside Mosul, and Shabib drowned after falling off his horse while retreating across a bridge in a panic. Mutraf ibn al-Mughira's rebellion gets much less attention in our sources, and in the rare instances when Mutraf himself comes up, he is often depicted as naive and overly idealistic. And Yaqubi doesn't even mention him, though Al-Tabari does have a few accounts. It isn't exactly one-dimensional, but Mutraf is somewhat mocked for taking the plight of non-Arab Muslims seriously. What started as mere doubts about the caliphate and concerns about its justice grew more problematic in Mutraf's mind, as al-Hajjaj's behavior became increasingly belligerent towards the Iraqis. As they did with Mukhtar, our sources seem to frown upon his championing of Mawali and his calls to treat these converts as a full-fledged part of the Ummah. It's unclear whether Mutraf was ever hailed as Caliph, something claimed in a few narrations. In fact, there is little we can be sure of beyond that his rebellion largely coincided with Shabib's. He must have lost a battle in Iraq, because he went east into Iran, he decided to not go to Hamadan, where his brother was governor, so as not to implicate him, but he did ask him for some weapons and money, indicating that he must have been getting desperate. Unremitting armies wore his supporters out, and within a few years Mutraf died in battle, and his movement came to an end. Some narrations say that al-Hajjaj punished Mutraf's supporters brutally, while others that they were all pardoned after they pledged and begged for mercy. Al-Hajjaj and the Umayyad generals managed to best Mutraf and both Karajite leaders, Qatari and Shabib, all within the same year, probably 697. So maybe this is a good point to stop our narrative and reflect on the state of the Ummah under Abdul Malik's leadership so far. This remarkable extent of mutiny across the East actually had little impact on the stable West of the Caliphate. Remember, Abdul Malik felt confident enough to send a huge army out to Africa, which doesn't sound like something he would have done if he'd felt threatened by all these insurrections we've been talking about. I can't think of anything which would imbue Abdul Malik with more confidence than having witnessed the effectiveness of his generals firsthand. The Arabs and Syrians produced some truly great commanders, their skills honed during the second fitna, who harnessed the martial potential of their men to devastating effect. Abdul Malik owed a lot to these military leaders, and he is said to have spent every spring at Jabiya, the capital of the Qahtani tribes that many of his best commanders came from, to honor them in the same place they had chosen to back his father's bid for caliph. Another man Abdul Malik owed greatly for his service was the vicious al-Hajjaj. The governor's legacy is heavily contested in later sources. These early ones are united in portraying him as a bloodthirsty maniac intent on breaking the Iraqis in punishment for their seditious tendencies. 
Later historians muddled this impression by musing about how he was actually really pious and was trying his best to keep the Ummah united, or simply carrying out orders, or that the Iraqis had it coming. They have all kinds of takes. Anyway, it's probably best that we hold our judgment until we are done with the man. Al-Hajjaj is going to stick around for a little longer. He is probably the only name worth remembering from the many I threw at you today. I think it's fair to say that Abdul Malik had done a terrific job so far. He dealt with internal rebellions, failed military strategies, influential insiders, the sons of Ibn Zubayr, renewed aggression from the Byzantines, an unruly East, and so much more, growing ever stronger with each conquered challenge. In the changes he enacted, he was laying the solid foundations for a dynastic state meant to withstand the ages. But as with his loyal governor, Al-Hajjaj, we should reserve judgment until the caliph's reign is over, and Abdul Malik will grace us for one more episode. So join us next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. <laughs>